2: Hello, everyone. My name is Christopher Patterson. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Washington, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. As a discipline that emerged from the Third World Movement in the 1960s, Asian American Studies is fundamentally interdisciplinary. So we will feature books on anthropology, history, literature, art, political science, and sociology, all that help us understand the varied experience of Asian Americans living in or or interacting with the United States. Today we are joined by Don Uh, She is the associate professor at San Francisco State University. We will discuss her new book, Little Manila is in the Heart, the Making of the Filipino-American Community in Stockton, California, which was published by Duke University Press this year. Don's book depicts the Filipino settlement in Stockton, California's Little Manila as a remarkable and unique event in Filipino-American history. By covering a rich 50 years of Stockton's Filipino-American community, Mabalon shows that not all Filipino migrants were roving bands of workers who rarely settled in West Coast cities. With a sharp focus on a small space, Mabalon tells the story of Stockton as the story of Filipino America, showing how the town's history depicts Ilocano, Tagalog, and Cebuano immigrants who came together in the city to begin identifying as Filipino-Americans. From the 1920s until the 1970s, Filipino Americans thrived in Little Manila's working class four to six block area, which was comprised of rooming houses, pool halls, dance halls, grocery stores, barbershops, churches, and union halls. Babalan's study reveals a space where sedentary Filipinos started families, churches, unions, and businesses, and where migratory Filipinos came to relax, meet old friends, dance, and gamble. Acting as a center of gravity for the emerging immigrant community, Stockton over the decades became a sort of capital of Filipino America. So I want to welcome Don Mabalon to the show. Don, how are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thank you, Christopher, so much for having me.
2: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself, how you came to this project, and uh, even your graduate school or where you come from.
1: All right. Well, um, I was born and raised in Stockton. I am a third generation Denai. Uh, my maternal grandfather and my paternal grandfather, uh, they both came from the same small town, Numancia, in Aklan province in the Visayas, and they both found themselves in Stockton in 1929. And um, I talk about this in the book, all the different ways that my family then came together. Um, on my mother's side, my grandfather went to fight in the 1st Philippine Infantry in World War II, met my grandmother, brought her back to Stockton. On my father's side, my grandfather left my father, who was five years old at the time, and his wife and, and um, my father's uh, brother and, and sisters, and uh, came to the United States and then eventually brought them all back together uh, over several decades. So, um, I am a daughter, I guess, of Little Manila, a granddaughter of mm-hmm. Little Manila, and uh, I did my undergrad at UCLA, and it was there that I started really understanding my my family's history and Filipino-American history and my own life in the largest context, taking classes in Asian American studies and in Filipino-American history. And um, it was this really golden time to be at UCLA. I I really count myself as just so blessed. Mm. For one, we had uh, Uncle Royal Morales who was teaching the Mm. Filipino-American experience course, and he created that at UCLA, and um, I was one of the last years of um, students that he you know, lots of cohorts of students that he had. He retired mm. a few years after I graduated from UCLA. And he was just an incredible um, teacher and, and so dedicated to the community and just really was this example of, of how to be a scholar and a teacher of American Studies and have your heart so deeply embedded in the community and to do it all for the best and and with the best intent and the most passionate kind of, um, kind of teacher. And that was just, that was amazing. And there were a lot of Silicon American graduate students, um, on campus at the time, you know, wonderful mentors, people like mm-hmm. Kathy, Denise, a Choi, um, Linda Maram, August Spiritu, um, Arlene DeVera, people who were ahead of me in, in history. And, um, and that was amazing to see as an undergraduate, you know, to, to go mm. to UCLA and to have, um, these Filipino-American graduate students doing incredible work. And um, and so in many ways, my book began there. I mean, I started doing law histories with family for, you know, Asian-American studies classes. And I had planned to become a journalist. I was actually a writer mm. at the Daily Bruin at UCLA. And I had never even given one thought to, to becoming an academic at all. Mm. <laughs> I was going to be a writer. I was going to be a feature writer, you know, a features writer and do um you know maybe do some writing on filipino americans at some point in time but it never really crystallized that i that i should go on to academia until um mm.
0: and
1: and until Kathy Sidney the Choi talked to me in office hours one day. i was taking a, a, my the philippine history course with professor Michael Salman there and she was a teaching assistant she said you know you you should think about graduate school you know and that was really important for me because as a pinay from a mm. a um Farm-working family, and also I, my grandmother and my mother were public school teachers, so, you know, I wasn't the first in my family to go to college. Um, I knew that I was going to go to college. I just didn't think I would go on to get my Ph.D., and I didn't think that that would be mm-hmm. the route that was even possible. And like I said, those those graduate students that were there at UCLA and the, the Master Students in Asian American Studies just, you know, really were wonderful role models for those of us who were undergraduates in the early to mid-'90s, you know, to really creating mm-hmm. the field that we have now. You know, and, and building the field, and on, um, and building on on what was created for us by people like Uncle Roy Morales and the Filipino American National Historical Society, and and the Uncle Fred Cordova and Auntie, Fred, Auntie Dorothy mm. um, Cordova over at Fons, who I'll, I'll talk about in in, um, in a second, if you can remind mm-hmm. me too. But um, from from there, when I was, you know. In my Asian American Studies classes, and, and the more that I can, and kind of put my own family history and my community history in this largest context, I realized how much was missing in, in mm-hmm. what we knew and understood and taught about Filipino-American communities. Um, the idea that Filipinos never settled anywhere, that we were just these mm-hmm. roving bands of, uh, of workers, and I think that was something popularized by Ronald Takaki and Strangers from a Different Shore, and he had based mm-hmm. his narrative on Carlos Bulosan. And, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Bulosan and, and his impact on Filipino-American um, history and, and studies in a little bit, but this idea that that was all that we knew about the community and that was all that was important just really struck me as 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 strange because here I had grown up in this large... And, and vibrant Filipino community where there were women who had come over mm. in the 20s and 30s, um, women who had been war brides, women who were leaders in the community. And if there had been no Filipino communities and no durable institutions and no families, then how did I exist? <laughs> you know? How did, mm-hmm. you know, what, uh, you know, what, what, um, what were we saying about, about these, these communities like Stockton and Watsonville and Salinas and, you know, these, uh, Seattle, you know these these San Francisco, these older, old historic Filipino American communities in which people are in the fourth and fifth generation. You know, um, my uncle Fred Sons, you know, often said, "Well, that's the narrative of Filipino American history that it's just roving bands of bastards." And what did, mm-hmm. where did we all come from? Did we just suddenly appear? You know, second and third <laughs> generation Filipino Americans. So, you know, as I as I took um, these Asian American Studies classes and history classes, I realized how much I I. I love teaching and how much I love doing research. And I decided to do my Master's in Asian American Studies at UCLA. And mm. again, it's really golden time to be there. I mean, you know, Uncle Roy was still there. Pauline Agbayani stewart was a professor, a Pinai professor in social welfare. I had a wonderful mentor in Valerie Matsumoto, who's still mm. there in, in the history department, who, who's done, you know, really pioneering work in, in second generation and culture and family and food, um, Japanese American histories. Henry Yu was there. Uh, Michael Salman was one of my mentors. Um, George Sanchez was just was just leaving. So this is really and, and Enrique de la Cruz was a um, was also in the Asian American City Center there at UCLA. And so there was this really amazing and wonderful gathering of of Filipino American graduate students, mm-hmm. of professors, and then as as an undergraduate there, it was also just the Samahang Filipino organization was was vibrant and strong, and, and we started the Filipino American History Month celebration there. So just really, really blessed to be in this amazing Filipino American community at UCLA.
0: Mm.
1: And um, this book really started there, doing the oral histories with uh, with my family. Um, there was one oral history I did with my dad's best friend, um, a man named Claro Candelario, back in 1993. And it was for... Uh, the Filipino uh, American experience class for Uncle Roy's class. Mm. And, uh, you know, he'd been my dad's best friend for decades. I mean, I had known him, you know, I mean, he'd known me since I was a baby. And so
0: mm.
1: I went and, inter- you know, I went and started to talk to him. And I told him that I had read *Americans in the Heart. And he said, well, you know, I'm in America's in the Heart. I'm the Claro character in *Americans in the Heart. And I was like, yeah. no, <laughs> you're not. You're just rambling. You're just, you know. And then he showed me pictures of, of him and Carlos Belosan. And, and um, you know, and, and if you look at, at at Carlos Belosan's papers and his plays, I mean, he, he mm-hmm. actually uses the, the name Claro for several characters, and it's all it's always mm-hmm. the same kind of character. A very um, educated, very politically astute person who was exactly what my Uncle Claro was. And so he had pictures mm-hmm. of them together, and it was just, you know, it it, it amazed me as a young um as a young undergraduate then and, and I'm really, really happy to finally have the book out and I can talk about my Uncle Claro and Carlos Belosa and and that connection that that you know and, and that tragic mm. and tragically the fact that I had to go all the way to UCLA to read that book. Yeah. You know, mm. and I mean that's another reason why I think the write the writing of the book was so important for me was that, you know, this I really felt the privilege of being able to go away to school. Um, not many, not many granddaughters of farm working families get to do that. Or Filipino Americans mm-hmm. in Stockton um, and, and to be able to use my privilege and my resources as much as I could to bring this history in a sense, you know, not just to the world, but back home, back to mm. a place where not many people have access to it. I mean, mm-hmm. there are no—and I say this in the book, you know, I grew up in Stockton not knowing that my father's friends were heroes in Philippine-American history, <laughs> you know. Mm. My father yeah. knew Larry Itleung, you know, my as a as a personal friend, as a Lodge brother, you know, and I I did not know who Larry Itleung was until I went away. Um, mm. And And I think that's a tragedy, and that's something that, you know, I'll talk about a little bit later as we talk about what we do in the Little Manila Foundation— but um, I think it was, it, we, you know, the fact that I had to leave home to really understand home and that this, this appreciation of of this community that we built in Stockton and, you know, particularly the labor activities of, um, the labor organizing activities of, of the people in Stockton, um, the fact that more people outside of Stockton know about that and, and mm-hmm. people taking Philippine American Studies and Asian American Studies know about that than people in Stockton is, is a tragedy and, and I tried to explore that in the book, too. So, okay, so after UCLA, mm-hmm. I, I, I decided to go on and get the Ph.D. in history. And, and I had wonderful mentors at UCLA that, that really believed in me and said, you know, you could, you could do this. And, I, again, at every step, I wasn't sure if it was a, the right step for me. I mean, like I said, my most of my life I had wanted to be a writer. Um, yeah. But write, a writer for magazines, a writer for newspapers. I'd been editor of my high school and my college um, community college newspaper. I'd been a writer at the Daily Brew and I had interned at USA Today. I mean, you know, my whole path was, was in that direction. And, and I guess if I had known in the early nineties, what print journalism and the, the future of
2: print journalism would be, I guess I'd make pretty good
1: decisions, <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> well, you're on a podcast now. So. Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess I,
1: yeah. <laughs> and that's where journalism is gone. But, you know, then I decided. um to to move back up to Northern California to go to Stanford. And I think that was a really, really, really mm-hmm. great decision to have done that. For one, I mean, Stanford was amazing. My mentor there was Gordon mm-hmm. Chang and, and another advisor, um, Al Camarillo and, and Estelle Friedman. Um, just amazing, amazing people who had mentored the generation before me of ethnic studies scholars, mm-hmm. people like Valerie Matsumoto, George Sanchez, Vicky Ruiz, Peggy Pasco, um, Antonio Castaneda. Um, had all gone to Stanford and studied under Al and and Estelle and and um, people like Judy Wu in Asian American Studies. You know, studied with Gordon Chang, and so mm-hmm. I felt part of this really warm, and and embracing community of of ethnic study scholars, particularly Chicano and Chicana study scholars. You know, um, mm-hmm. when I when I was there, it was myself, um, Kim Warren who's a professor at Kansas University. And she just wrote a book a couple years ago about American Indian and African-American boarding schools in Kansas. Um, Mm. And then uh, another one of of my uh, classmates at Stanford was Marisela Chavez, who is a Chicana historian and um, she's writing about Chicana feminism and she's a professor at Cal State Dominguez Hills. And then, um, there were also students ahead of us, people like Monica Parales and Shauna Bernstein and Gabriela Gonzalez and, and Gina Pitty, um, women doing Chicana history. So we were this mm-hmm. you know, it was this amazing and warm and um really, really supportive group of of American historians who we were all women of color doing pretty radical stuff, you know. Um at yeah. the time in, in the in the, the you know, the late nineties and we were all still friends and you know and and I also um Asian Americanists that came after me, people like Shelley Lee and Cecilia Sue, Um, you know, I I count myself so blessed to be part of as as you know, I, I felt like I was at these places in these really special times, UCLA in the golden years of having Uncle Roy, mm. Roy there and then at Stanford in this time that there were all of these people doing um Histories of their hometown. For example, Monica Morales's uh, book about smelter Town, this award-winning book that came out last year, and she was also studying her hometown, you know, mm. um, in in um, near El Paso, Texas. And so the kind of work that I was doing was not just kind of far out there, crazy kind of work, you know, that it might have been uh, regard it uh, might have been regarded in maybe some more conservative history departments or mm. history departments that. Didn't also, you know, didn't have a history of producing some of the most, um, you know, um, important scholars in in, uh, in kind of the new American history, right? You know, mm-hmm. American yeah. history, Chicano studies, et cetera, et cetera, and to be mentored by people like Pamarillo and, and Gordon Chang and Estelle Friedman and, and Richard White, also um, mm. does a you know nineteenth century American Indian history. Just, this again, just I'm so thankful to be to have been at Stanford and. At that time, with these wonderful people all around, and and um, you know, just I think helped me mm-hmm. help me learn how to really be a you know be an historian, um, the kind of historian that you know they were the kinds of historians that I aspired to be. They're so, just amazing role models. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you know, and I laugh. I, I, I talk about the book taking twenty years, but if you count from the time that I first started doing oral histories with my grandmother and my uncle Claro. <laughs> You know, really, I mean, I started doing that in 1992 time. and I used them for the book, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, the dissertation I was writing from, you know, 2000 to 2004, technically. But really, I mean, what ended up in the book, you know, were bits and pieces of undergraduate papers and oral histories. And mm. really the last two decades trying to, you know, piece together the history of my hometown.
2: Mm. It does seem like a very... Uh, on, on the surface, one could mistake it for a kind of traditional project because it's about a city and the migratory workers there, but it's actually very ambitious once uh, I started to read it. It's very transnational, the point of view. Uh, it also it's, it compares a lot of different ethnic groups, like you said, with um, African-Americans and Chicanos at the time, which is also kind of unusual for, uh, for an Asian-American book. And, uh, and then it, it also focuses on the very cultural, everyday uh, parts of the town. And, of course, Filipino. Uh, women mm-hmm. uh, as, as a big focus of the book. Uh, and one of the reasons I think I connected with the book, too, is I'm a fourth-generation uh, Filipino-American, so I never – it was hard to kind of uh, accept the, the Manong I guess narrative of the roving bachelor.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, you're, you're, kind of you're like, well, then where did my grandparents come from? <laughs> and yeah. They never settled anywhere <laughs> or had kids, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Um, but I, wanted, I was hoping you could speak a little bit more about the uh, – how, how that historical narrative um, kind of developed, uh, maybe about Bulosan. It is Bulosan's, I think, his centennial uh, birthday this month. Uh, so it'd be interesting to hear um, about him uh, constructing the kind of Manong narrative.
1: Yeah. Uh, and how yeah.
2: Stockton shows something quite different from that. So what is your kind of take on, on those historical narratives?
1: Yeah, you know, actually, just in, you know, we just had a we just had our Filipino American Book Festival here in San Francisco this last weekend, and we had a, a mm. panel on the life and legacy of Carlos Bulosan, and it was mm. I was really honored to be on it because it was Oscar the the famed writer Oscar Penaranda was mm. the moderator, and I was also on it with uh, Dan Gonzalez, um, um, professor at San Francisco State, who teaches the Filipino American History course, and then um, my mm-hmm. colleague and my best friend, um, Dr. Allison Singco who teaches the Filipino American Lit course, and so we were talking about things like Wilson's birth date and his legacy. So, in terms of his birth date, um, on his original arrival record, his, uh, his uh, the, the ship's manifest list when he arrives,
0: mm-hmm.
1: his birth date is is April sixth, nineteen twelve.
2: Uh, so we've all got so, it
1: wrong. You know, we were, I mean, we were all laughing because in, in all these different biographies, Issa Wands Juan's and Susan Evangelista's, I mean, was, you know, November or October, or even on his grave, uh, on his headstone, I think it says 1914. Uh, so I have no idea. Um, I would i would tend to believe the, the ship manifest because he's coming over mm-hmm. as a really young kid and I mean, he doesn't know at that point that he's going to have an FBI file. <laughs> he doesn't know at that point that he's going to he's going to be under surveillance and that he's going to have to hide and not, you know, try not to get deported or, or um, you know, so I'd imagine that that would be the most genuine birthday, unless at that point he's also mm-hmm. trying to make himself older or younger, who knows, <laughs> right? <laughs> so anyway, so I guess we could say happy 100th birthday, uh, Monon Carlos, um, but I guess, you know, <laughs> whatever it is he <laughs> wanted to be um, at whatever year. So, you know, it's interesting that, that we were, you know, we talked about Carlos Blosan's legacy because I felt like his book was one of the books that, that really frustrated me as an undergraduate, mm. because again, where are the women? He, there is one Filipina mm-hmm. in the book and, you know, she was supposed to be at Stanford. It's interesting. Um, she was supposed to be at Stanford, but then she had to drop out and, you know, he comes, um he, he meets her and, and it's like a surprise that, wow, there's a Filipina here in this entire mm-hmm. community, you know? Um, and it frustrated me because again, it's those questions, uh, you know, Well, what about all the women in Stockton's little Manila that you had to have run into, you know, that you had mm-hmm. to, that you, that I know you knew, because the more I talked about Bull with, with old timers and relatives, I mean, it turned out that people that had never talked about their history finally were opening up when I was asking questions. You know, mm-hmm. I would ask aunties and uncles, "Well, what about Carlos said, Oh yeah, 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 we used to play pool, blah 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 blah. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, Carlos Bulosan. <laughs> oh yeah, he would always just, you know, he'd be drunk all day, and then he'd stay up all night and write, <laughs> and blah 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 blah. You know, and then, and then in that um, that interview that I did with my uncle Claro uh, about his, it was about his life, but he also talked about his relationship with with Carlos Bulosan, and he told mm-hmm. me, "Oh, you know, Carlos Bulosan never worked a day in the
2: field." Never worked, yeah, you, know, uh, you, never you put worked. that in the book. What is that? <laughs> I like that part. I like that part in the book.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's very it revealing. And that shattered. I mean, that broke my heart as an undergraduate. You know, because you read <laughs> Americans in the Heart, and you know, on the one hand, you're. For me, I was. You know, here was this amazing book that he actually talks about stock. That he talks about El Dorado Street, and he mm. and here are Filipinos in print, and about and Filipinos from a long time ago in print. You know, and then and then to find out that it was fiction. I mean, it's heartbreaking. And then, and then you go, okay, well, if it's fiction, um, but, it, but he's also, you know, talking, trying to create this history about the communities, then where are the institutions? Where, is the, where are the communities? Where are the women? Where are the families? You know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, in many ways, this book was about the frustration, you know, the, the origins of the book. When I first mm. started thinking about that, I, I really want to write a more nuanced and complex history of Filipinos in America was born from this frustration with America's in the Heart. Now, what happens later is that the more research that I do and the more um, that I started to really create the book and and think about the important turning points in this history, I realized how much Bulusan sun had written that was history.
0: <laughs> so he
1: had missed all these themes that I I was really interested in in the book, but then there were also these historical moments that he talks about in Americans in the heart that really show that, you know, he was really trying to use this opportunity that he had with this mainstream press, with the book that he knew that was going to be distributed widely and published nationally, to really tell the history of Filipino Americans as he saw it. And mm. so moments like um, I talk in the book about a Japanese American strikebreaker named K. Morimoto, who uh, mm-hmm. who essentially was hired by Sansei farmers to break the Filipino labor union, the Filipino American Filipino Agricultural Laborers Association. And um, I went back to America's in the Heart, and after you know, doing all my archival research and and newspaper research and doing all the histories about the strike, going back to America's in the Heart and realizing, oh, he did mention her. He mm. mentioned the strike, and he mentioned her. I was just too young to kind of, at the first, the first few readings of it, you know, I kind of read it mm-hmm. through for a few times and then kind of put it aside, and then was like, okay, I'm mm-hmm. going to do real research now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then going back to the book and going, oh, I should have paid more attention to to Carlos Buloson talking about this this woman because perhaps I would have mm-hmm. found her earlier if I had let up mm-hmm. and and written you know more about the strike um, you know and then he in a sense Carlos Wilson makes himself the fourth dump of Filipino American history in in the book I mean he shows mm-hmm. up he, he happens to be in Seattle when when the leaders of the Alaskan Cannery Workers Union are, are assassinated right and then on the one mm-hmm. hand you could say well he's trying to write himself into history which is how actually a lot of his contemporaries. Uh, you know, oh, he didn't work a day in the field. What does he know about a peace strike? You know, <laughs> what does he know about going to work in Alaska, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Mm-hmm. But stepping back, you realize, well, he's trying to tell this history that if he feels he, and he feels that if he doesn't tell it in this book, people are going to forget. Mm-hmm. You know, um, nobody's going to know, and he's he's got to show these turning points. He he wants people to understand that these are the moments in Filipino-American history that were important. You know, the assassination of the Union leaders, the breaking of the strike mm-hmm. by Japanese-Americans. Um, he also talks about the death of Francisco Verona. And again, I write about the death of Francisco Verona, who was a... a, a Diplomat in the Resident Commissioner's office that helps Filipinos in stockton organize one of the first very successful labor unions—the one I just talked about, the Filipino Agricultural Laborers Association. But I w- again, going back to the Bullisun book, um, he talks about him too, <laughs> mm. you know, and 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 what an amazing leader he was, and how tragic it was when he died. And he did die—he at uh, very young, from an aneurysm right in the height of the organizing that this union was doing. So this was a really heartbreaking moment for the Filipino-American community. So I kind of, you know, in the writing of this book, I, I, I feel like my respect for... I, I was seeing Carlos Bulosan's America's in the Heart as literature primarily and mm-hmm. a little bit of yeah. history, um, primarily from my kind of undergraduate and early graduate school years. And as I was writing the dissertation, and I was writing this book, uh, a really newfound respect and admiration for what Carlos Bulosan was trying to do as an historian. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, and, and and the you know the irony of kind of writing this book because I was so frustrated with Americans in the heart, yet this book ending up being kind of an homage to Carlos mm-hmm. Bulosan you know, is is really I think um, kind of kind of funny and interesting, you know, and and the fact that you know, and then in the in the research I did for this book, realizing that Carlos Bulosan knew my grandfather who ran the restaurant, lost the Lafayette lunch counter in Little Manila and that he had collected his mail there. I talk about this in the introduction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, and also the fact that, you know, I didn't get to understand or know Carlos Bulosan and um, appreciate him until I went to college, but our family had a first edition signed, America's on the Heart. But because wow. there was no appreciation of Filipino-American history and of Bulosan's place, you know, I mean, this is the 60s. I mean, it, that mm-hmm. America's in the Heart doesn't get reprinted until 1973. So, you know, my my cousin uses it as her as, as her coloring book. It's kind of thrown around as scratch paper in the house. And when uh-huh. I was talking to my father about Carlos Buloson when I was writing the book, he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we used to have a copy of that. And got it kind of got trashed." <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, it's kind of stuff that people in Stockton, again, take for granted or don't think of as history. And I talk a lot about this Mm. in in the introduction. I mean, because they don't learn, you know, there's no Filipino-American history in Mm. the K-12 system. There's no Filipino-American history class. There are no Filipino-American history classes at the community college or at the local private university, (laughs) University of the Pacific. I mean, you could literally pass Mm. through Stockton as a Filipino-American and not realize the significance of Uh your your town, your neighborhood, your community in the larger history of California or the nation. It's everybody else has history but we don't. You know, mm, we're not important. Yeah. We're just a bunch of farm workers and whatever our grandfathers and uncles talked about, that was just those are just ramblings of old men talking mm. about cockfights and taxi hall dancers and you know mm.
2: stuff like
1: that. So um yeah. Yeah. You did
2: mention the uh, the the other Filipino communities. Uh, I guess where Filipino Americans settled, like in Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, so it, I, I think you're right that Stockton has kind of been missing from that narrative. Yeah. Uh, even though, as you point out in the book, I think it was the the first or the largest.
1: It was it was the largest um, Filipino American community mm. on the West Coast uh, for most of the 20th century. Mm. You know, and and when I did oral histories. With with people and I said, well, what about L.A.? What about San Francisco? And mm. a lot of them would say, oh no, 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 no. It was and that was fun. People, and that's mm. kind of the the irony for those of us that grew up in Stockton in the eighties, nineties, and just this last decade. I mean, we would give anything to to go to a big city, you know, <laughs> and have fun that You know, go to Sac- even Sacramento was was a big city outing for us. Mm. Um, but for Filipinos at that time period. Coming to Stockton was their big outing. So people would come from Seattle, from Los Angeles, from Salinas, sure. and go to Stockton for the big Fourth of July party or, or you mm-hmm. know, during the summertime when it was the height of the asparagus season and every Filipino on the West Coast would be working asparagus and Stockton was the headquarters. And and so mm-hmm. it helped me to to imagine this amazing, vibrant community um, I mean, some people talked about you know El Dorado Street being the Filipino freeway that you would just cruise El Dorado mm. Street and people would be waving at you and calling out at you and you'd see your cousins and family and relatives. It was the the ways in which that they remembered this community was 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 so amazing and so heartwarming um, for for those of us that that grew up with without any memories of Little Manila because so, so much of it had been destroyed and um, mm. you know so. So, and again, for us who grew up in Stockton in the later part of the 20th century, imagining that our little town would be the center of Filipino America is, for our generation, it's hard to imagine, but it it happened. You know, it's amazing, you know, that that critical mass would bring even more critical mass so that. Mm-hmm. This, this little town becomes a center of, of this migration, and, and you know, people looking for their relatives would go to Stockton and, you know, looking for cousins and, you know, coming right off the boat, knowing that they could go to Stockton. They would most likely find somebody from their town, if not their own relative, you know. hmm
2: Yeah, well, uh, let's begin uh getting a bit more into Stockton, first through uh, the Filipino woman that you uh, write about. You devote quite a a lot of time to them, and then they become very integral to the story throughout your book. Uh, So I'm just wondering how how did you uh, settle upon that, and uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how they were integral to the community and how uh, they affected future generations of Filipino-Americans?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I... I did a, a, a master's thesis for the M.A. program at, at UCLA in Asian American Studies, and mm. my master's thesis was on Filipino women in Stockton, and, and Valerie Matsumoto mm. was my advisor. And, uh, again, I really wasn't sure if I was going to go on to do the Ph.D., I, and that was my direct response to Bulasan. <laughs> All right, you're not <laughs> going to talk about Filipino women and, and other historians of Filipino America. You're not going to talk about Filipino women, or I'm going to write a thesis about mm. Filipino women in my hometown. You know, so... It at the time that I started writing it in the uh, in the mid nineties, a lot of these monongs were still alive. Mm. And they were in their eighties their and and just amazingly amazingly open about their mm. lives. And I, I was thinking about this the other day and I was um for almost all of them they were widows. Mm. And in their in their eighties with their Kids and their grandkids and even great grandkids grown in a way. I felt like they spoke about their family lives with the freedom that they may not have had if I had interviewed them in their fifties or sixties. It was very interesting, mm. you know, the ways in which they talked about the give and take of power and the kinds of power mm. that they had as as young Filipinas in a in with such a, a, a skewed sex ratio imbalance, you know. Mm. Um, and and women talked to me about domestic violence. And they talked to me about, go oh boy, go boy, I talk about that phenomenon, that, that term that was coined in Hawaii for um, that phenomenon of a man coming, another Pinoy coming and stealing a wife, you know,
0: mm.
1: cowboy her way to lasso her and take her away. And, you know, talking to more women about the kinds of freedom and power that they had, you know. Because of the sex ratio imbalance and the fact that their parents mm. and their grandparents and other elders that would normally control their behavior, and um, mm. you know, that changes the terrain of gender relations completely, for one. And then, two, the fact that divorce was legal in the United States. Mm. and that was something that no one had ever really talked about. Well, the exception of, you know, Auntie Dorothy Cordova's research was really pioneering in looking at Filipino women. I was always inspired, and really, she mm. really helped me and mentored me when I was writing this thesis and also this book. Um, but to think about women's power and how it increases mm. with the sex ratio imbalance was something that I found that was really important and that you see kind of throughout the building of, and, and continued building of this community because women are so rare that they that they all they occupy all these different places these these different positions in the community their mothers mm. their sisters are symbols of homeland you know they're they're sought after you know there's intense competition for for lives you know so there's increased power but there's also an increased burden there's also incredible mm. exploitation through queen contests um you know they're working you know double days they're working in the fields and they're also responsible for the labor in the home. So yeah, I was also careful to not romanticize this women's power either, you know, mm, yeah. because it's like, okay, women have more power, but they, no one's helping them wash the dishes at the end of the day either. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. they may have more power, you know, but then there's also something to be said about being in a situation where you could leave your husband if you wanted to. That's something they could never have mm. done if they'd stayed home in the province in the Philippines. Mm. You know, so, um, and the fact that they could really choose who they married, you know. Even mm. though I talk about um, women who, you know, who who whose parents kind of chose their spouse for them. I mean, I talk about women, particularly second-generation women, um, who were born in the United States or in Hawaii in the 20s and 30s, who elope. And mm. so, for all this talk of kind of this traditional Filipina, demure Filipina, you know. Um, who listened to her parents and submissive and Catholic. I mean the surprising number of elopements that mm. people talked about were, were really, really interesting because you see these American born daughters really bucking, you know, their their parents' expectations and in many ways taking um a cue from their own mothers who whose whose power had increased when they when you know if immigrated, you know, in their immigration to the United States or, or through mm. their their marriage choices in the 1920s, you know, 10 to 15, 20 years prior. So, you know, so that was, mm. I think that was, you know, working on, on gender and women is really one of the most important parts of the book for me, because that's something I really wanted to to emphasize, that that, that was one of the reasons why Stockton was the capital of Filipino America, because there were the mm. most Filipino families there. And one of the reasons being is that if, if you had a family you wanted them to be as kind of settled as possible, kind of near mm-hmm. you know near institutions near other families, near schools. you know there were um, a lot of families that were migratory as well, but mm-hmm. um, for many of these families you know if they're out in Oakdale or out in tracy or out in lodi i mean you 're still coming back to Stockton on the weekends you 're coming back to little Manila, mm-hmm. so there's that community there, and so it 's the women and the families that really form the foundation for this larger community. And then uh, many of these women become leaders. Mm. You know, they're, they're, the fact that there's so few of them really put them at the center of the family and the community. And so you mm. have in the 30s, you have in the 40s and the 50s, women who are running for president of the Filipino community of Stockton, women who are
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: delegates to the statewide Filipino community convention, you know, um,
0: mm-hmm. these
1: kind of amazing women leaders. And talk that again, I really wanted to to write into our Filipino American history because in Takaki 's account and bullet account they 're really invisible
2: Mhm, yeah, I like that uh, it was, I found it very interesting that when you talk about power uh, with Filipino women, especially in the book you 're not just talking about domestic power in the household you 're talking about public power and yeah uh, yeah,
1: I mean even the clue uh, contest is. As exploitative mm, yeah. and as damaging as those were, I mean, women really learned how to use those to their advantage. I think women mm-hmm. who realized, oh, I could, you know, I I I meet certain standards of beauty, or my family is politically powerful. I'm going to parlay the money that I make from these queen contests into my tuition for college, or into my clothes for school, or into buying food and furniture for my family. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. it was, an, or you know, I'm going to. I'm going to use my position as an eligible uh woman to get men to buy groceries for my family, even you know, to get mm-hmm. men to give do favors for my family, you know. So I mean, I talk about that, but that leads to a lot of in jealousy and in frustration on the part mm-hmm. of Filipino men, and they know they're getting played, but what can they do? There are only three mm-hmm. eligible Filipinas in Stockton, you know, so, <laughs> and and 500 men are trying to, you know. I'm, I'm not saying three. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you know when you've got a limited supply of Filipinas, mm-hmm. right, their price goes up. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah. You know, and
1: they certainly—and I only say that partly tongue in cheek because they—they become commodified as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's an exploitation of their bodies, but then they're—they're they're not victims either. You know, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to emphasize that, that that there were women that said, "No, I'm not going to do this tech, this social box thing. I'm not going to do this this queen contest thing." But there were other women that said, "Hmm." If this is a way that I could make a thousand dollars for my family or for my college tuition, mm-hmm. well, so be it, mm-hmm. and I'm going to use this as much to my advantage as I can.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I like the uh, the transnational history that you give of both the woman and Little Manila, Manila itself is really uh, fascinating. I was hoping you could illuminate a little bit uh, about how. Uh, As you claimed, Stockton was a kind of capital for Filipino-Americans, but it it also seems to me like it's part of the formation of Filipino-American identity. Uh, Coming from all these different ethnic backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, uh, people started to identify, I think, as Filipino-Americans as they settled. So can you tell us a little bit about how that started to happen and women's role in kind of uh, bringing disparate groups together?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think – I. Right, you know, coming from Stanford and coming from UCLA at that time, I was really, really influenced by books like George Sanchez's *Becoming Mexican American*, and you can really see that Mm. in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more that I, I realized how you know people always talked about factionalism, and the more I realized how divided the community was, and and I really understood more about differences in dialect. I mean, growing up by, by the '80s, '90s. You know, um, Filipinos. I mean, there there were factions and there were divisions, but for the most part, you know, they had created community organizations, and my grandparents and my parents were really active in all these different community organizations. So, I knew the Filipino community as I, I imagined it as kind of this a historical, you know, entity. Mm-hmm. And then the the more that I delved into research for this dissertation and that became this book, I realized. Um, how alien all of these different groups must have seemed to one another when they all first got off the ship, and that's something mm-hmm. that you also see when you when you really read the a lot of the oral histories that were done, you know, by Fons and 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 other um, scholars and students in the in the '70s and '80s when this generation was, was the people were first doing these oral histories when they talked about being on the ship and not being able to talk to anybody except for the people that were, you know, in their group you know, that did, mm-hmm. did come from their town. I mean, I think there was this assumption that, well, everybody went to American colonial public schools, they all spoke English, and that's how they all mm. communicated. And for the most part, that's true. But at the same time, that didn't necessarily mean that they all saw each other as brethren, as Pababayan. Mm. I mean, oh, yeah, they're also from the Philippines, but there's this, there's this, um, it, you know, the the um, the affiliation... That these early immigrants see you know attach to is is really about their first their their clan, their family, their village, and their region and so mm-hmm. and then there are also these divisions of class, so you mm-hmm. have for example, the goddess coming over from Hawaii. And their families coming into Stockton in the mid-1920s, people who had been organizing the sugar strikes and then been blacklisted from working in Hawaii and then decide that the mainland is going to be the better place for them. And they're mostly you know, Ilocano or Visayan and coming from very, um, very kind of working class, kind of peasant stock because the HSPA, uh, in their recruitment efforts, they wanted to make sure that people that they recruited were not literate. I mean, there were a lot of people that lied that actually were literate
0: yeah. and came over uh-huh. through
1: Hawaii. So we know that that certainly was not the case. But so you, so you have that population. You have the lower middle class of the provinces coming over uh, from the provinces of the Visayas and, and northern Luzon, the, the Ilocos and Fandasinan areas. Mm. Um, many of them, um, like I said, they're not the poorest of the poor, but they have a little bit of land they They know english they 've gone to school up to at least maybe middle school or high school and they've they're coming over in the hopes of going to college mm-hmm. and then you have the government sponsored pensionados
2: mm.
1: you know and those are they're in much smaller number but so you've also got so you 've got those class differences and, and linguistic differences and regional differences and and I think that that the racial violence and the the brutal labor conditions that that everyone is experiencing in Stockton, and regardless of whether or not you are a pensionado from, you know, from the locus region, or you're, you know, coming over as a cicada from from the, from Hawaii and you're mm-hmm. a Desiyan. I think really that that experience of of being racialized into these brown others in Stockton, and, and I mean in America and then in Stockton specifically really forces people to add, if if not replace, and I, I don't mean replace their identities, mm-hmm. you know, they go from Milicanos to Filipinos, but they realize that they have, you know, they really have to come together, and mm-hmm. they've got this identity that, that is, you know, imposed on them, whether they like it or not, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as as these brown-debased savages, and mm-hmm. and um, in order to do anything about it, they're going to have to come together. Mm-hmm. and so and and so my my narrative is not really about so much that they that they come together and everything is fine i mean they you know they they're always gonna have divisions mm-hmm. they're always going to be you know different factions and stockton dying for political power, and a lot of it based on you know people coming from the same town or the same region or speaking the same dialect or you know cousins et cetera et cetera but mm-hmm. just that that um solidarity with one another as Filipinos is really born through their experiences in the field, their experiences with racial violence in Stockton, realizing Mm -hmm. that, you know, that education was not going to shield them from anti-miscegenation laws, for example, or Mm -hmm. the same wages, you know, or the same lack of work opportunities or the same violence, you know? So that was something that, that I think people, we, it was kind of missing in Filipino American historiography, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, uh, that coalescing, that coming together, that the fact that that Filipino American identity was was something that was historical, and that we could we could mm-hmm. understand how that identity kind of is is forged and comes together. And then in the second half of the book, I talk about how their children, uh, many of the second and third and fourth generation, they're all mixed up. They're Ilocano and, mm-hmm. and Tagalog, and so and they don't know their regional languages or dialects, and they barely mm-hmm. you know. And they speak only English. So by that point, what use are, you know, they have no use for regional affiliations except for maybe, mm-hmm. you know, the mutual aid organizations that their families belong to. But certainly they see themselves by the second and and, and third and fourth generation as Filipino-Americans. Um, and, and those regional differences just are not that salient and not that important. They're bigger issues for them to deal with, things like redevelopment, racism, mm-hmm. rights, you know, So, um, yeah, and and also I I talk about how that that Filipino-American identity is absolutely essential in Filipinos coming together in farm labor unions as well, because they Mm -hmm. realize, you know, they can't organize as Ilocanos. They can't organize as Visayas, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they have to organize across, you know, these regional groups as Filipinos because they're treated the same as Filipinos and the only strength that they're going to have in winning, these 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 battles for worker justice and wages and work conditions is, is to come together as Filipinos. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, let's skip towards the second half of the book where you start to uh, talk about how Stockton has changed, uh, especially since World War II. Uh-huh. uh And you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that uh, people don't seem to really... There doesn't seem to be much institutional remembrance uh, of Stockton, as, uh, especially Little Manila itself. Uh-huh. So can you just... Uh, tell us kind of what happened after World War II, uh, yeah. how the city developed and redeveloped.
1: Yeah, so what happens after World War II is something tragically that happens in most American cities uh, in terms mm-hmm. of redevelopment. Congress passes a law called the Housing and Slum Clearance Act, which basically gives money to municipalities to clear their slums.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: the intent, um, at least on the part of housing activists and, and, uh, and uh, tenement reformers, uh, and, and kind of slum reformers, with the hope that that substandard housing and tenement housing could be torn down and then replaced with better mm-hmm. housing. Now, the problem with the, with with redevelopment, as it was that was put, as it was put into policy and practice after this law throughout the nation after World War II, was that the cities, um, the, the neighborhoods and ethnic neighborhoods and and working class areas of cities across the nation were targeted. Demolished, cleared, thousands, if not millions of people displaced, and then ha- replacement housing was not built. They were basically just kind of swept off of the face mm. of the landscape. And this is what happens to Chinatown, Japantown, and Little Manila and Stockton after World War II. The city of mm. Stockton identifies nine blocks in what they consider Skid Row. And I talk mm. a lot about this in the book that Skid Row is in the eye of the beholder. For white, middle class, mm-hmm. and elite Stocktonians, they looked at downtown area that was diverse, and with diversity, they saw slum. It didn't even matter if the building mm-hmm. was falling down. The building could have been, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a beautiful, you know, um, historic example of, you know, a certain kind of architecture. But if it was mostly black, mostly brown, mixed, it, it was considered a slum. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing that happens in the Fillmore in San Francisco, the South End, of the Italian neighborhood in Boston. The Upper West Side in Manhattan, in the Puerto Rico neighborhood there, you know. Um, mm. So you have in Stockton thousands of working class people displaced when when the first urban redevelopment project comes through. So nine whole city blocks just just waves to the ground, and everyone mm. basically told move on. Nobody was given replacement housing. No one was even given relocation money, and you mm. have to imagine that here are Filipinos who are renting in these these. Old hotels and business owners who are leasing their storefronts from whites who own the buildings, mm. because Filipinos are not able to become citizens until 1946 after World War II, mm. and so they don't own anything. This is their neighborhood, but they don't own any of the buildings. And so, when redevelopment comes in, it's, it's, the, it's the white owners of the buildings who are, you know, who are taking the uh, the rock bottom offers that the city of Stockton is giving them for their land and saying okay I'm out of here I've made a little bit of money and I'm going and oh. you know I mean this essentially the tragedy is that um, there was no organized opposition to it because people had not yet put together the idea that um, affordable housing and low income housing were civil rights issues mm. it was it was seeing you know I, I on the one hand you could you, I think it, it it would be too easy and, and cruel to say, oh well these Filipinos they just they just sold out. You know, they didn't they didn't protest. I mean this is nineteen fifty six. The civil rights movement mm. hadn't even started yet. I mean mm. what were these poor guys supposed to do? Chain themselves to the bulldozers? Do mm. some direct action boycott? You know? <laughs> I mean, we don't even see that until the you know, late nineteen sixties with the International yeah. Hotel. And I mean that was a tragedy when I saw the, the Fall of the Eye Hotel. And an undergraduate, it moved me to tears. I just showed it to my, um, to one of my seminars last night, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then realizing the same thing had happened in Stockton, but it was, it was numerous hotels. It was Mm. dozens of hotels, all like that. Everyone being evicted, their belongings thrown out in the street. And, and it was, had been such a painful thing that happened in Stockton that few old timers Mm. could even talk about it without getting emotional about, you know, and, and also second and third, generation Filipino Americans just seeing that pain of the of the of the old monuments walking around with nowhere to go in, in in their old neighborhood. So after that redevelopment project, there were still four blocks left of Little Manila. And then mm. the, the the state of California decides that they want to build a freeway right through downtown Stockton to connect two larger freeways. One is the I five, you know, and mm. the other one is is a state highway called Highway ninety nine. And then trucks need to get between those two freeways. Those are the two main arteries in California. Well, the state highway commission decides we'll, we'll, we'll put the connector freeway right through Stockton. Mm. And uh, they decide on a route that cuts right through little Manila. So two mm. more blocks of little Manila get destroyed. This is in the mid to late 1960s. And then that leaves just two remaining blocks. And again, You know, these men are given, like, here's 25 bucks to find a new place to live. But where else are you going to live when most of the hotels in downtown Stockton have been demolished for redevelopment or for this freeway? So, and I talk about this in the book, a lot of um, Filipino organizations, you know, Mm. buy small homes in South Stockton and house their elderly there. Um, The De Guhoi Lodge in downtown Stockton was one place. The Ilorilo Circle, the Cabarese de Masalang many of these mutual aid and fraternal organizations built um, mm. or or converted their buildings into places where their elderly members could live out the last years of their lives. And then I talk about the movement for the Filipino Center in Stockton, um, mm. which I think is, is um, I really, really wanted to write about this fight for the Center because I think um, when we talk about, Development and reactions to redevelopment, the only story that we know in Filipino-American historiography is the I-Hotel.
0: And mm-hmm. I, I just yeah. thought
1: Estella uh, a wonderful book about about the I-Hotel and the organizing around the I-Hotel. But Stockton's organizing around our Filipino-American center that was built in response to all the redevelopment. Nobody knows that history. And um, and mm. I wanted to write it. Uh, Lillian Galedo, one of the youth activists who was working on the, the Filipino center, and she's... Um, Director of Filipino Advocates for Justice in Oakland, you know, she was saying, you know, people, there there are lessons to be learned from from the struggle for this Filipino center for all Filipino communities in Stockton. Mm. This the, this history just had to be, you know, had to be written down and shared. So what ends up happening is that there's this kind of uh, very progressive wing of the Filipino community that that uh, pushes for a Filipino American. Uh, center a affordable housing and retail, mm-hmm. and they're able to use housing and urban development funds kind of war on poverty and great society funds to get a mortgage for the center and they just paid it off last year and so oh, wow. that was one i mean and so we have to see this as one response that a Filipino community um makes you know towards towards redevelopment and mm. and certainly the i hotel is one response right you know the mm-hmm. literally chaining uh, of ourselves to the doors and, and refusing to go. And then Stockton, Stockton struggle happening a full decade prior. And, um, and their response was to use these new liberal programs of the great society, um, the war on poverty to build this center, which was the first mm. um, HUD funded Silicon American affordable housing project in the nation. Mm. And again, you know, this question of, well, what does this little cow town of Stockton have to offer to the rest of the community? I mean, most Filipino-American communities are still trying to build their community centers. Mm. You know, and Stockton did theirs 40 years ago in response to their original mm-hmm. community being torn down. So a lot of lessons to be learned. And, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, divisions and and things like that. So.
2: Great. Have have uh, other groups uh, or other organizations since I think the. Uh, You said the community center was in the 1970s when it was started?
1: Yeah, um, 1972 was when it opened. Okay.
2: Uh, uh, What about uh, since then? I think you mentioned some um, uh, organizations at the beginning of the interview uh, that are still trying to remember Stockton or are still trying to participate in that history.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I haven't mentioned it enough, but I, I owe so, a huge debt to the Filipino American National Historical Society, um, headquartered mm. in Seattle and the Stockton chapter of FONS mm-hmm. for, for really, you know, I wrote the book, but it was, it, you know, they are the ones that, that, that did all the oral histories for so many decades and, and kept carefully all of these archives and these photographs, you know, so I'm in, mm-hmm. totally indebted to them. The National Board of Trustees of Fonds designated the, the Filipino American National Museum to be in Stockton. And that was okay. over two decades ago. And mm. so we're hoping that that can come together in the next few years. But um, but I haven't talked about my own preservation work in 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 Little Manila in mm. Stockton. And I talked about this in the book. Um, when I came to Stanford and kind of left LA and came back home, the city of Stockton was tearing down another block of Little Manila, and it hit even closer to home for me because it was the building that one of the buildings that was going to go housed my grandfather's restaurant. And then wow. to add insult to injury, but they replaced these, you know, these um, it was also old hotels and stores, and there were models in their 90s living in these hotels when they got evicted. You can imagine, for hmm. some of them, it might have been a third or fourth eviction after how many years. You know, to add insult to injury, these, um, their, their block was replaced by a McDonald's and a 76 gas station. Wow. So for us, this was really about, well, didn't 1 doesn't really care about its poorest residents, And then what does it say about how we feel about our Filipino-American history as Filipinos and Stockton if we allow our historic neighborhood to to become parking lots, fast food places, Mm. and gas stations? And so we started the Little Manila Foundation in 1999, and we we lobbied and successfully won from City Council the designation of the Little Manila Historic Site. So that's four blocks around the intersection of Lafayette and Alvarado Street. Uh, it also includes the freeway, but we, you know, we want people to understand what the, the boundaries of the original community were. We place mm. signs, and we, were, we have banners all around the Little Manila Historic Site. Um, and so with the Little Manila Foundation, we, we advocate for the preservation of the neighborhood and for educational programs so that people in Stockton will never have to do what so many of us had to do, to leave Stockton and to take an ancient American studies course only to come back and say, Wow! All of that happened in my own hometown. I didn't know it.
0: <laughs>
1: you, know? Okay. So, you know, so the Little Manila Foundation works with, with the Boston chapter of Fonds in, in many of these projects. We do an annual calendar. We host uh, tours of Little Manila to hundreds of, of visiting college students and and community members. Every year, we uh, we produce a Carlos Bulosan play. We actually brought. Of the mm-hmm. uh, the Mayi theater company that had done the romance of Magdalubio. Um mm-hmm. and we, we had that performed in Stockton and again, here was this play that Carlos Willisison wrote while he was in Stockton about Stockton. It had been performed in New York and performed in l a but the people in Stockton had never even seen it and didn't even know who Carlos Willisison was, wow. you know so those are the kinds of things that we try to do to, to really raise awareness so that we could raise money to eventually, you know, hopefully buy and rehabilitate the last three remaining buildings in Little Manila. There are three mm. buildings that are, that are original um, to the, the neighborhood. One of them is the Mariposa Hotel, and Carlos Bulosan and Larry Itliong, um, Chris Monsalves, had stayed there when they led the big uh, 1948 asparagus strike. Next door is the uh, Resolve Social Club. And that was one of the taxi dance halls that was owned by a Filipino in Boston. And that was used by Black Eyed Peas as a backdrop for their video for Beblet. And they tried to read okay. what it looked like, you know, in a taxi dance hall. And the next door to that is the Filipino Recreation Center. And that was built mm. by the same, same entrepreneurs as the Rizal Social Club. And that was where they, they showed Filipino movies. They had dances mm. and union meeting meetings. And then the whole bottom floor is a casino. <laughs> but now, uh, so what we want to try to do is those, for those buildings to, to to stay there and hopefully um, we can, you know, work with the owners to rehabilitate them. I mean, uh, we don't really have the resources to buy everything now and, and rehabilitate them. The most important thing is to make sure that they're still standing. Um, mm. About uh, 10 years ago in Stockton there was a developer that wanted to tear it all down and build a 99 ranch and a Goldilocks there. And so that was a huge battle that we had in Stockton and we were successful and in driving that development proposal away.
0: Mm. So um
1: we're and we're, we're very proud of that. So if folks want to go oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, work, that's uh, littlemanila.org. little manila org and you can also buy my book there and all the proceeds will benefit the Little Manila Foundation and uh we also do a an annual Filipino American history calendar and so we are you know, trying to to do things that, you know, for people in Stockton that don't have that privilege or that access that we do to, to to take these full American Studies courses and to be graduate students, mm. and to be scholars in our field, to have access to the scholarship and the work that we're doing, and 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 to be proud of of their history in Stockton, and also to to question issues of oppression and racism in Stockton as well. Mm. So we um we started an after school program, the Little Manila After School Program at my old high school, Edison High School in Stockton, and so we have several dozen. Um, students that learned Philippine American history as with our high school students. Something that we had, mm. you know, we had all the moderns around us. We just didn't know the questions to ask, you know, when mm. we were young. And so, you know, it's the hope that there will never be another generation in Stockton that will grow up not knowing how special their hometown was or, you know, how important their their grandparents and their ancestors were in not just Filipino-American history, but in the building of this state, in the building of this nation, and in the larger history of the American empire as well.
2: Mm, that's really inspirational. <laughs> uh, well, Don, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit of, about what you're working on now? I know this book All just right. came out, so no rush yeah. to work on new things. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so I actually I have a, a brand-new anthology that just came out called Eating Asian America, and mm-hmm. it's edited by Martin Manalansan, Anita Manor, mm-hmm. and Robert Koo. And so it's a collection of scholarly essays about Asian American food. And I'm mm. really happy that um, I have an essay there called um, As American as Jackrabbit Adobo, Cooking, Eating, okay. and Becoming Filipino-American Before World War II. So um, it's, uh, it's about Filipino-American food across the West Coast, what people were eating and and producing and um and the kind of unique Filipino-American cuisine that emerges through the meetings of, you know, people from all over the Philippines coming together and the resources they had in the United States, the kinds of foods that people were processing and harvesting and mm. working in. So you have dishes like jackrabbit adobo. You have seal, um, you know, seal papa, seal adobo in Alaska. You have salmon head sinaga. Mm. You know, you have these very unique Filipino-American dishes that emerge from this this Immigrant and Settlement Experience that I talk about in an the essay there, and that's going to be a larger book project, and I'd like to travel all across the country looking at the different ways that we cook and eat as Filipino-Americans, mm. and I mean, I think we have this mm. amazing history as food producers, as, as harvesters, and as chefs. Mm. I mean, Filipino, it, the, the film The Butler, I think, is this really great um history of, of African-American service in the White House, but we're also mm-hmm. forgetting that Filipinos have served as stewards and cooks in the White House for decades before mm-hmm. the set of there. So, mm. you know, we've got Filipinos cooking in the White House as stewards. We've got Filipino Navy retirees opening up restaurants in Virginia Beach. You know, we've got oh. all different kinds of the ways that we eat and, uh, Filipino-American food that are kind of rooted in our history and uh, our migration and our settlement patterns. So. That's gonna be my next big project. So it'll be it'll be um, recipes and pictures and oral histories and I'm hoping that'll mm. you know I'll have I'm doing the research now a few more years, not twenty.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not as long <laughs> as it took with, you to do this book. This one <laughs>
1: takes, uh, takes a lot less time.
2: <laughs> well, great! I want to thank you for uh, being on the show today. I think was, that sounds like an amazing project. So hopefully, if I'm still doing this, we can come back for that.
1: Great. Well, Christopher, I want to thank you so much for featuring Little Manila's in the Heart and um, and having me on your program. Thank you so much.